Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. So imagine stepping out of your day-to-day life and just dropping yourself into a gorgeous 130-acre natural playground for three and a half days of learning and laughing and moving your body and calming your brain and reconnecting with people who just see the world the way that you do and accept you completely as you are. So that's what we've created with our Camp Good Life Project or Camp GLP experience. We've actually brought together a lineup of really inspiring teachers from art to entrepreneurship, from writing to meditation, pretty much everything in between. It's this beautiful way to fill your noggin with ideas to live and work better and a really rare opportunity to create the type of friendships and stories you pretty much thought you'd left behind decades ago. It's all happening at the end of August, just about 90 minutes from New York City. And we're well on our way to selling out spots at this point. So be sure to grab your spot as soon as you can if it's interesting to you. You can learn more at goodlifeproject.com slash camp or just go ahead and click the link in the show notes now. Because I, I do feel that when I write each time I'm answering the deepest question to myself or for myself or the, like, you know, what's plaguing my life or like, or what's really the question that's important to me. Imagine actually working for four years, then taking a year off. Imagine actually living your life that way. Well, this week's guest, Karan Bajaj, does just that. He has his traditional corporate job. And then every four years, with intention, letting his employers know, 
he takes a year sabbatical and completely leaves everything behind. He's not trying to accomplish anything. He's not trying to learn anything. He's not striving for anything. He's just utterly letting go. And he immerses himself very often in completely different worlds in the depths of India or all sorts of foreign places and lands where the process is really just rediscovering himself. That is a big part of the conversation in today's episode of Good Life Project. But we don't just stop there. There's also some really interesting big cultural conversations that we dive into. He grew up in India in a town of Himalayas and then moved to Delhi. And I wanted to take this opportunity to really explore some things like arranged marriage and education and sort of how somebody's academic or career path are determined and how that really differs profoundly from the way that it happens in Western society. And the conversations were really revealing. Um, and in the end, a lot of it really comes full circle when we bridge the gap between some ancient thought and some modern science. At the same time, by the way, he's also an author. And during some of those one-year downtimes, he has learned to not only write books, but write two number one best-selling books in India and a new one that's out called The Yoga of Max's Discontent, which is getting rave reviews. And it it's a really fascinating book because it's, as he describes, a thriller um, that's a page turner and it keeps you, you know, sort of flipping pages and flipping pages, but it utterly immerses you. The his his goal was for the author to be completely invisible in the pages of the book, yet for you to complete it having somehow not vanished, but in some way been transformed. Maybe that's too strong a word, but uh that is what just may happen when you dive into it. Anyway. Really fascinating conversation, interesting author, completely different path than I've ever heard anybody take to becoming a huge author and also simultaneously keeping a corporate job. Of course, keeping that job for four-year stints. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? It's a, That would be an interesting conversation, just the publishing experience yes. is sort of like in, in different... Um, different countries but i'll actually i mean you can we go there a little bit anywhere you want yeah, yeah. because i am fascinated so we're hanging out and you've got this book coming is this your first uh u.s base like big first worldwide release right. right and you had two before that were number one bestsellers in india yeah yeah they've been uh, they were very successful in india and again we were talking a little bit about longevity and they've like they're still in the they're still in the the, the success for a book in india is that is it on the street corner because ah. I think half of our books are pirated in a way. Almost oh, no like kidding. 30% of the industry officially is pirated. Really? And so if the book hits the street corners, that means that you are it's selling well. And if it doesn't hit the street corners, it's not. It's com- so, so, so it's, it's like uh, the opposite metric. Yeah, exactly. so, yeah. you have to, so I think if 10 years later your books is in the street corners, that means it's seeped into some kind of culture. And, you know, and, and sometimes they don't. <laughs> That's so interesting. And, and when it hits the street corner here, and, you know, if it's not, quote, official, then everyone's all freaked out that yes, it's being exactly. pirated. But there is, I think, just accept it as a part of the you know like the ecosystem of publishing if you will. Yeah, I think yeah. they try to crack down on it ever so often but then it it's just so widespread that it yeah but I mean I guess it also is, you know to a certain extent it's just sort of you know a manifestation of just a bigger acceptance of how you know products and services and quote intellectual property moves through society in the US versus India exactly yeah yeah so as everybody can hear who's listening you don't have a Brooklyn accent <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> Although maybe over time you might uh, develop one. So you grew up in India. I grew up in India. Um, yeah. Tell me, where where was it? I grew up in the foothills of the Himalayas, actually, in a small, or at that time, a small town called Shimla. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, I was there for a majority of my schooling and then later moved to Delhi and stuff. Yeah. Right. What was, tell me a little bit about uh, what that town was like. As idyllic as you can imagine in, in terms of like a lot of space and playing in the mountains and no structure. So all, like almost all the stereotypes that you would think of a mountain town in India. Yeah. And then on the other hand, the flip side of that was that it was educationally very backward. Like, you're, you, you know, there'd be one school in the whole town that and the teacher would like often forget to teach geometry for instance like I, I when i moved to delhi in the ninth or tenth grade i had never like i didn't know what a parallel line was because the teacher had never taught geometry you know like it was very like <laughs> it was just completely not focused on education and achievement at all yeah which is again a sort of like the exact opposite of here where there's hyper standardization yeah. and all that saying it's yeah the other side of the spectrum yeah. why did you end up moving to a delhi did the whole family move no, actually not. I think it was uh, just the nature of that if you had to, I guess, accomplish something in life, you had to, you just knew that you had to move out of the town. Right. And so then I, I just went to Delhi for my uh, my high school years. So were you alone? Uh, for I stayed with my grandparents' place okay. for, for three, four years, yeah. Got it. Had your brothers and sisters? Uh, my yeah, I have a sister, and she went to an arrange. She had an arranged marriage quite early, mm. um, when she was like twenty two. So yeah, she was. You know, she she kind of like grew up in the town for the most part, and then yeah, yeah. I'm actually really fascinated by that. Can we can we dive into that a little bit? Okay, because I was actually just reading. Yeah, I think it was on the BBC where I saw it. There was a a piece about extraordinarily high suicide rates among women in India. There's something like twenty twenty two thousand women in India a year kill themselves, and one of the things that they were looking at was the fact that arranged marriage is still mm. you know pretty much the norm, yeah, and that there's um. And again, this is not my words, but what was being offered in the article was, you know, there's a very high degree of unhappiness and, and disempowerment within the personal relationships. And very often the mother-in-law, the bride's mother-in-law, the wife's mother-in-law, there's a huge amount of tension between them and lack of support and uh, lack of desire to sort of disengage from the husband's family. And that's causing... You know, just so much, I mean, literally the level of unhappiness and depression that so many women are feeling that the only option is to take their own lives. I mean, when I saw that number, like 20,000 plus a year, I was, I mean, heartbroken. And all of it is true in the sense, uh, like it's one dimension of the story, but that dimension itself is true that there is a lot of parental pressures and all of that stuff. Like, for instance, like my closest friend in India wants to adopt a kid. But his family is so religious that they would not accept it. And that's leading him to not adopt the kid. Like this is almost unthinkable in this environment where people would have such a strong opinion on your life. Right. And you actually listen to that opinion. And I, yeah, so so all of all those facets are actually very true in like in very modern environments as right. well. I, I think it's just very hard to explain because I like my wife is Irish Catholic uh, and she's from New Jersey. And even when we think when we say like when you think of an Irish Catholic community on paper it is very close-knit right. and like it's a very like close-knit culture but I think the respect for personal space 
in the US compared to what we grew up in India is like dramatically different. Like the the reality there was is it's a combination of physical space. There's like too many people in a in small land land masses, I guess, in India. There's just no respect for personal space at all. Mm. So if I think of the last sabbatical that we took, my wife and I uh my family would be openly like and they, they didn't even they weren't being harsh it was just the way they would openly say what are you doing you have like you you're totally irresponsible you have no kids at this age they just say that i mean and i'm sure my wife's parents were thinking exactly the same thing but they would never <laughs> right. like the respect for personal space is so high that people would not express that opinion openly but yeah, my yeah. family uh despite being very modern is very like like my wife would be shocked that they would just say things like this on right, this right. on on uh, so it's like just people have no filter in terms of personal boundaries at all yeah, yeah. so i think what you're saying is is very right in terms of the complete lack of personal boundaries leads to a lot of issues i think but then there's also the upside of it that there, it's a very community oriented culture and all that true is also true yeah and yeah. and and i guess that's the side that that's not contrasted against that also and and also i mean from what i've seen and it's sort of like flipping back to the idea of arranged marriages too because again it's kind of this fascination of mine <laughs> it seems like a lot of people actually have very long and enduring relationships yes. where where it started that way yeah and then you look at the you know the success rates of marriages and partnering in yeah. this country and we don't have the best record <laughs> yeah i i think in somewhere in the middle is the truth perhaps somewhere because yeah. i think what happens there is that you you enter the marriage with a little bit of a more of a spirit of selflessness like you enter the marriage with huh. this assumption that you're going to make this union work rather than try to maximize the return as an individual from that relationship i think yeah like you just enter with that assumption going in and i think that just kind of makes you a little bit more selfless in the union right. on the other hand i think the 1% divorce rate in india is ridiculous i think it should be 25% or like i don't know 50% in the us seems high but i think yeah yeah like a quarter should be the norm like you know you do make wrong decisions right. at least Oh, so twenty five percent of the time, yeah. So the official divorce rate is one percent. It's one percent. Wow, which is very low, and it's and that's I think the unhappiness because I think that one percent is artificially compressed because of social pressure. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but fifty percent on the other hand seems like right somewhere. Ridiculous. Somewhere there's a number <laughs> yes. which yeah, yeah. Makes, because you also yeah. have to figure you know if. You know, the downside, if it's societally, societally expected that you're going to stay together, you know, is that, you know, a lot of people will stay in relationships that are probably physically and emotionally destructive. Yeah. But, but the flip side is maybe, you know, for some relationships, it'll create a container and a set of expectations that will keep you in it and make you sit down and have conversations and work harder to actually see if it can work in a way where maybe you give up easier if you don't actually exactly. have that constraint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you come with so so many expectations of what you expect the other person to be while in yeah. arranged marriages, you're just coming in with just a hope, uh, <laughs> a little bit more than a hope, just a very basic knowledge of the other person. Yeah, I'm so interested. It's so easy to, to sit, you know, on sort of like sit on the pedestal of one culture and look at another <laughs> yes. and judge it, you know, without actually understanding going deeper, really like, you know, okay, what's really going yeah. on here? It's really, it's fascinating when, you know, you said this was triggered by something I just saw on BBC the other day, I think it was yesterday actually. And my, my knee jerk re reaction was horror. And then I was like, well, well I'm, I'm actually really happy I could sit down with you and just <laughs> balance this off you a little bit also. Yeah. So you end up going to Delhi basically for school for educational reasons. Yes. And from there, I'm curious, what kind of a kid were you also? For a long time in India, you don't have a personality almost because what happens is that you're very linearly, single-mindedly focused on 
getting settled in some way. So it's almost huh. like when we grow up, we are almost told, uh, like at that time, and then we are talking 10 years ago, because now the economy is rocketing, right? right? So things will change dramatically. But yeah. 10, 12 years ago, when we were growing up, uh, the whole idea was that you had to become either an engineer or a doctor. Mm-hmm. Those were your two career paths. And you automatically knew that you would not be a doctor if you were squeamish about, I guess, medical stuff. So your only career path was to become an engineer. And you didn't think beyond those boundaries at all. So for the most, for almost, I think for the first 25 years of my life, I didn't think. Like I didn't think about my expression as a person. And so for instance, we are all trying to clear one examination, which has 3 million people applying for 1000 places. Oh my God. So it's a great, but that's the, like uh, we have a institute called the Indian Institute of Technology and then Mm -hmm. an Indian Institute of Management. They are, it's like the Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Princeton all combined into one college. And that's the one college that you can be assured of getting a job after you are done with it. So the competition is insane. It's insane. Like three, four million people are applying for a thousand places. So it's like, I don't know, it's just the hardest examination. So, But you're so focused on that milestone that you don't, like you don't actively just think about... Oh, I like you, you, you like philosophy or you like, but you never think about uh, anything uh, in terms of making that a career stream of any kind. Like you're just very focused on clearing the examinations in order to get accomplished to a level that you feel that you can have a job. And then you start thinking, now it sounds horrendous when I say all this, right? But I don't know, I've seen the US and I, when I came, I thought it was horrendous compared to this freedom of expression that I see here. But now I'm kind of on the fence again, because what I see with my wife's friends, for instance, is that at too early in their life, when their mind hasn't been fully trained and developed, they've been allowed to make decisions. Like at 17, you shouldn't be figuring out that I want to study English literature. Like maybe it is, it's too early for you to make up your mind mm. and make expensive decisions about things like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so I think in our model, we didn't have that luxury to think until our mind was fully formed. Mm. I mean, yeah. it's so interesting, right? Because I look at what's happening in this country also. And, you know, it's funny. Like, I had two reactions as you were speaking. One was this knee-jerk reaction. Like, what do you mean we don't have <laughs> you know, Like, yeah. we can do what we want. You know? yeah. Like, yeah. We're, but the other one was, you know, it's funny. It's sort of like I'm a dad and I have a high school daughter. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, the cost of college right now is, you know, for private school, somebody's going to drop between probably 40 and 80 grand a year. And, you know, yeah. and the average kid graduates after six years these days, not four. So you're wow. talking three to $500,000, but to get through private school, like hopefully like yeah. mine goes to public school or something. So the idea of investing on that level when you really have no clue right. which way is up or what you're genuinely yes. interested in or who you are for yeah. that matter. Yeah. I agree with. To me, I, I would actually, I think it's really interesting. I think it's really healthy to maybe just take a few years off, travel the world, take right. some time actually figuring out who yeah. you are. That, which is fair. And our hypothesis was almost the opposite when we were growing yeah, up. Yeah, it uh, sounds like it. That your, your education is extended till age 21 in or 22 when you go to engineering college and business school. Right. Uh, you're kind of like, so that's what I did. I went after high school, I went to engineering college and then business school and got a good job after that. And after that, you can think all you want and you can philosophize yeah. and you can like f- find yourself, but don't find yourself when you have like no money, your family has no money, you have no money, like don't get into the find myself space then, mm-hmm. which I don't know if it's, like, when we were going through it, we didn't like it to, to be very fair. Like, yeah. But but in retrospect, I feel I just had a lot of liberty after that when I joined Procter & Gamble and I started having a career. I just had so much more liberty to pursue a lot of interests without 
restriction. And I think that's been a very important part of, I, I think I've seen that over a period of time, that's been a very important part of my writing as well. That yeah. I've never left my career. Like some aspects of that have like seeped into how I am today. Yeah. No, that's yeah. really interesting. Is, is, um, is education in India, do you pay privately for it or is it all, is it covered? Is it sort of like government? The the colleges that work? I talked about, they're yeah. completely subsidized. Right. So you don't pay, you pay like a fraction for the education that you get. You Got like, it. Yeah. Uh, and that's a big part of the whole process. The, exactly. Too. Yeah. 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 Um, which also explains you know, like the three million people applying for uh, a exactly. thousand spots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to just sort of like reverse that and say, okay, like there's a there's this really linear, almost predetermined path until you get to your early twenties. Yes, um, and then you can actually start thinking about like who you are and what you want to do with your life. When you and also the fact that it it you're not paying, you know, I think it's a huge difference also exactly exactly so you don't graduate having no clue who you are and what you really want to do in a massive amount of debt that may <laughs> right, take you exactly you know a generation to, yes, to try yes, and wipe yeah, out yeah so in a way it's almost like those years are tough but then once you graduate i graduated with a job for with procter and gamble in philippines i was outside india for a while then like i kept going out to different parts of the world with the yeah. job and and i had no debt a lot more space to think, a lot more maturity because I, uh, or not, not the like le- the worldly maturity, but I guess enough intellectual maturity because I'd read a lot of concepts and all of that stuff by then, and I think right. that had a. Uh, it's it's just a different model. It's not comparable. Yeah, I don't think one is right or the. So or so, what's the process of figuring out who you are? For me, right now, it's become there. There is this very interesting word in India called uh, Sanskrit called dharma. I really like yeah. that word. I, maybe you've heard of sure, uh, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. So dharma is really the innate tendency of any being. Like, you know, the dharma of the trees to grow and bear fruit. It's not to become a river. Like, it's just that every being has a certain tendency. And similarly, humans come with, everybody comes with a certain tendency. And And I think I like the word dharma because really your goal is to purify yourself or like to reach a level of stillness in your mind that you can know what the tendency is, mm. if you will. So so to answer your questions in a more direct way, right now I've kind of created like what I call a 414 model in which I work for four years and then take a year off. And then I come again and work for four years and take a year off. And I, I really like that model because it's not that I work and write. That's not the point. It's more like the four years that I'm working, I'm very goal-driven I work, I write with very dis- with a lot of discipline. In the year that I'm off, I'm consciously completely stripping myself of all goals. I don't even read that much. Like, you know, like part of my thing is that I fill a lot of my space with reading and wanting to grow and become better. And I, in the year off, I even let go of that burden completely. And I just drift for a year. And I think in, th- in, in that combination of like being tight and figuring things out and then completely slackening, I just discover things about myself that I then express which I find, like, I think I, I like this kind of model in which you're tight and slack. Yeah, um, yeah. that's so interesting. There's, a, are you familiar with a designer named uh, Stefan Sagmeister? Oh, yeah, he wrote, he did a TED talk on sabbaticals, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 so yeah, he has yeah. this, it's similar, but he does like a seven, every seven years, yes. he takes a year. Yeah. You know, and he says that that one year off essentially gives him everything that he needs to go. Yeah. His biggest ideas, his, you know, like the calmness, everything that yes. he has, it gives him everything that he needs to power through the next seven years yeah. and make it really juicy. Yeah. And and I, I, I've heard this talk and it's very, like, very, very interesting because he actually uses that to get inspiration for his creative endeavors. Yeah. Your purpose is different. A little bit different in the yeah. sense I almost use it to not fuel any. Like my goal in that year is to not become anything at all. Is to not fuel, use that year to kind of fuel my 
deepen my writing or become better at my corporate job it's almost like the year of shedding everything off completely like so for instance i as i said till age 28 i hadn't written a single word and by age 29 i had written a book which did very like uh, you know became did very well in india just because i didn't even know i could write until i took this year for the first time lived in mongolia and bhutan places that i always wanted to live in and then i had this kind of almost this tendency innate kind of idea to just express that in paper and in a form of a story and that ended up becoming a novel and then then the latest sabbatical we didn't travel at all like we traveled but our like we just did meditation in the himalayas like it was just uh, every year has the years that i've taken off have been very different from each other with almost a lot of goallessness in it right and things happen as a result of like it's just you're just kind of like simplifying your life stilling your mind to express whatever innate tendencies you have yeah. so yeah. do do you find that when you're going from the four years of intense work to okay it's you know the next day okay that now my year off starts is it difficult for you to almost ramp down from that <laughs> very much like it's yeah. very hard and that's why i choose physical practices like like going to europe from europe to india by road with no plan at all like so like we almost like the year that we take off a day before we make the booking to the cheapest like destination in europe for instance like scotland from scotland we don't plan at all anything at all and let like i almost have to train myself to make even the most basic decisions intuitively like the basic decision of what happens when you go from the where you go next from the airport i i want to plan nothing i want to really make every smallest decisions completely intuitively mm. and and i think you just have to kind of train like i have to build that muscle and and i think that's that's how that's what helps me to slowly get into that gear yeah because i think most people would freak out at the thought of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you know i i don't freak out as much as it's just is very uncomfortable yeah like for instance like you would be passing through like like if i think of the sub we went from europe to india by road over four months and with this kind of an idea we ended up spending like two days in italy but three weeks in bulgaria just because we met people who were going to bulgaria and we liked them so you, you just kind of are yeah. getting very comfortable with that kind of decisions which make no sense on paper yeah and i guess you know probably you freak out in the beginning because you're used to so much structure and so much planning exactly. so much certainty but yeah. then i i it's not i it sounds like it's actually really good it's a, a really good training in just living in the moment and letting go of the need to know what comes next and letting exactly. go of like the need to lock down the future which um which causes so much suffering exactly i think that's what i like the about the practice so much and then what we have is like a little bit of signpost events so like europe to india by road four months and then four months we have this idea that we want to learn yoga in depth and where we learn it how we learn it what does that mean like it just kind of like we just figure it out as we go along and it's very like, exactly it just teaches you to live in the moment and then we also practice a couple of ideas like cutting this emotional materialism i think what happens with someone like me is that i'm very i replace uh, like i i just fill my life with a lot of noise like i'm i'm always constantly wanting to become better read a lot meet the right people who'll help me think more things and i think th- this year i'm stripping myself of that burden completely and i think that silence is amazing because mm-hmm. it's very I just create with a lot of purity then. Yeah. Because sometimes I feel like in the four years that I'm regurgitating ideas that I'm hearing, like I read 16 different blog posts right. and I think my ideas <laughs> become a summary of them versus... Yeah. Man, I feel that pain too. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> I think like... this year is very beautiful in terms yeah, of like yeah. I feel like I can spend hours just contemplating why was the world created? What is the nature of the creating energy? 
how did this all come about i can spend like it's it's beautiful to spend days just thinking about that stuff and having the space to do that yeah. while here i just i'm like not i'm not thinking those thoughts yeah you know? <laughs> and and something powerful comes from those which i really appreciate you know? yeah i mean it's it's so, i i wonder if you feel cuz it's interesting it's like a year of of integration and just being but i wonder if when you move out of that year do you feel like after essentially letting go of the idea of i'm going to progress i'm going to get better over the course of this year at anything you know i'm going to learn more i'm going to improve just letting that go and saying like this is the here and now i wonder if you end that year having made more progress towards some sort of internal path to becoming than you would have had you been pursuing it deliberately almost Absolutely. as a byproduct exactly i think it's a byproduct exactly that's what happens because if i set out the year wanting to become a better writer i know what i'll do i'll like read 18 books on writing and do my writing 10000 words a day or whatever like you know i'll just set all these goals i don't know if i'll become a better writer through that mm. or i become a better writer by being present and observing and living and so i agree i think the byproduct of that is always reflected in some and that's what i've seen this very funny trend because i've done this three times now over the last decade yeah that i come back and that year always gets rewarded materially it, without me planning for it so that's i always so i always expect to lose money because i'm like i'm working for four yeah, years like and I'm this I'm, yeah i'm yeah. taking off and i'm going to bleed money because i'm like you know just spending it and in the goalless nobody's you know cutting me a check for yeah, yeah. goalless so <laughs> so i but it's no always yeah, exactly <laughs> but i always come back and some like either this time it's the random house book deal is like you know low six figures and stuff and it's like like our sabbatical cost 25000 in total over like it always is profitable without the intent for it to be profitable because in some form or the other the growth that's happening will reflect itself in some tangible outcome in the world i guess even if that's not your in- intent or expectation yeah um uh, yeah. you know what's so interesting there is it is that man there's so many questions i have around that but this this idea of letting go of of desire of aspiration of the need to you know like go from from point A to point B yeah. being the thing that plants the seeds that actually manifests the actual outcome that you most want um and just the, like the the middle in there and this is where i think so many people struggle including me is is it takes faith <laughs> a big yeah. leap of faith exactly yeah, yeah. um that, yeah, no. that, that's not <laughs> yeah. easy for uh, yes, any, yes. for me or anyone yeah else. because i think you have to i think you have to just let go of even that seed within you which says that you want to become better at like even if you have this idea that you want to become better in the year in your like you like you secretly hoping to become better in writing or whatever your right, feeling like, so i'm saying this <laughs> yes. is like, oh, yeah, this you're letting go but kind of yeah. hoping at yeah, the end exactly. of that yeah, i think yeah, what yeah. happens then I, again i think there there is that that any act of becoming is good i think there is a role for that that's why i think the 414 works because i know that my innate tendency is not to be a hippie like i like it's just not like i am very focused towards like out like that's just my innate tendency to produce active stuff you know right. and uh and that's why i think it's good for me to know that i'll come back and have the space to create again produce again or like you know do so so i think th- i think that balances itself well if i was just taking a leap into the unknown without this idea that i'll be coming back to that routine then i think i would be i guess a little bit more apprehensive but yeah. i i always know that i'm going to 
or at least uh, till the time that doesn't happen on its own i always have a kind of a, a know that i'll come back yeah but yeah. It, i mean it's also a one interesting idea too to instead of say i'm ready to leave this behind and then i mean that becomes the abyss of the rest of my life that you're stepping into you know to actually say no there's there's a fixed amount of time there's a span that i'm agreeing to and my intention is to go back to this other thing, which, you know, I'm fairly devoted to, I'm yeah. good at, you know, I can jump back into. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I have to imagine that the shift in psychology of that makes it so much more tolerable. Absolutely. And I know, yeah. I, I wonder why not too many people do that because they do make radical, they do make radical decisions. Yeah. And so it's not like people are not taking risk, but I feel like when you take the choice that today I'm a lawyer, tomorrow I'm going to become a life purpose coach. For me, that's uh, much bigger than risk than being today. I'm a lawyer. I'm going to take a leap into nothing and come back and be a lawyer. That mm. seems to me much lower risk, if you will, almost. But yet has much more space in your life because when you go from lawyer to life purpose, you're going from one hustle to hustling for some other thing. And you're like always becoming, wanting, becoming like that cycle doesn't break. Yeah. So even though you're saying I'm living my life purpose, but you're just like replacing Maybe you are like living your life purpose in a better way, but then there's so much pressure to monetize that life purpose that some level of purity gets diluted. I, I, I've always feel I've always that's the reason I've always kept my job because, and there was there they've been tempted like temptations is not not from myself, but there was this one moment in April when my second novel got a pretty major Hollywood deal movie deal, which is surprising because it was made in India, but a German producer bought it. And the same month, I also got the deal for the third novel. It all mm -hmm. happened in the same month, and there's just a tremendous amount of kind of pressure to follow my dreams and all that. But it, it just takes a lot of discipline for me to know that my dream is not to to monetize my, like to create an infrastructure around my creation. Like it's almost like I'm trying to figure myself out through my writing. Yeah. And I want to keep it completely pure with that intent only. Right. And I, so, I, yeah. I love that. And I actually want to explore a little yeah. bit more, but I think I, we, we probably skipped one thing here, which is that when you talk about, you keep going back to your quote job yeah. and you're like, what is that? Yeah, so I keep going back to a job in different... Yeah, so my job is I've always worked in corporate uh, brand strategy, like brand marketing right. roles. So I started with Procter & Gamble running brands like Tide Detergent and all that stuff. Right. And then I've been in the same field with Pro from Procter. I moved to uh, Kraft Foods and then I'm the chief marketing officer of a startup now right. in the consumer product space again. So I've been in consumer products marketing, if you will. So when you, when you take a year off and then you go, you know, quote, back yeah. it's not necessarily back to the same job or the same company but you go back to the same industry where you know you have yes. you have credentials you have a reputation you'll be able to to find employment exactly okay. something like that sometimes like craft gave me a sabbatical so uh, that it, i ha i was year off on the payroll without getting pay like as oh, wow. a, so i kept my payroll and kept like my medical benefits for a couple yeah. of months and stuff so and bcg boston consulting group also did. so two companies have actually given me a year on the payroll with the guarantee of a job right. when I come back and and with PNG I just left. So yes, yeah, so it's a combination of those two things. But and what I've seen is that what happens is that I always change a little. So when I came back with craft, uh, it felt very discordant after doing yoga and meditation for one year to be marketing processed food. Mm. And so I came back, I, I like I, I did the honest thing, which was because they had given me a sabbatical, I worked for a year back with craft paid right. back what i thought was my dues for like for getting this opportunity and then i joined i became a chief marketing officer for an organic baby clothes company which felt more in line so i, I like I, I keep purifying like i think what's happening but i've never felt this very big dichotomy that now i have to become a meditation team like yeah yeah 
it just is not my dharma in some right. Ways. But it is interesting how when you come back, it informs your decision about how you're going to come back differently. Correct. So it's like you're still going back to the thing that you know that can yeah. you know make you okay yes. and provide security, but you do it differently based on how you've shifted. Exactly, absolutely, yeah. and that's why I think for me, life is that gradual uncovering in some form versus dramatic movements, which I think is a very U.S. Yeah. Like I think I think it's an American way to become, which is brilliant in its own way. But there is a becoming all. Like I feel like if I were to go from lawyer to life purpose coach, it would probably take me twenty years of gradual unpeeling. Mm. And then when I become a life coach, it'll be completely innately. That's what ha- it, right. it, it always it'll just happen because I've slowly unpeeled to become that. Versus today I'm a lawyer, tomorrow I'm a life coach, yeah. and now I'm. Moving from law to hustling for life purpose clients—it's just not like it's just not uh, the way I like. Yeah. Slowly, I think if I have to become a writer, it's not going to be because I've got a movie deal and a book deal. It's going to be because I just feel that that's my—I've slowly unpeeled and uncovered and silenced myself to become uh, like to truly feel like a writer. Like my dharma has changed to go from business to. Complete creativity. Right now, I think I'm seventy business, thirty creativity. Slowly, Im- more and more improve. Like it's just, it just will unpeel itself and become on its own. Yeah, you're right. There, I think it is is probably uniquely uh, Western or, or probably American ideal of you quit your day job, you take this thing that you love, your art, your yeah. your dharma, whatever that path would be, or not your dharma, but you take your yeah. art. You know, this thing which makes you feel like I've got to be fully expressed and my heart has to be a hundred percent satisfied. And you just you pour yourself a hundred percent into that. You blow up everything that came before it, and hope and pray that you can figure out how to pay your rent yeah. doing that new thing. Yeah. And um, probably doesn't cause a whole lot of pain when you're younger doing that. But yeah. the further you get into life, you know, when you <laughs> there's a lot more to blow up, and it's not just you. Yeah. You know, you may have a partner, you may have kids, you yeah. may have family, and you're not just making decisions for you. You're yeah. making you know this is a group decision that's going to affect a yeah. lot of people now. And um, it increase, it's funny, if you had asked me five years ago, you know, should somebody, you know, follow their heart into that thing, which is, you know, just lights them up, um, I would have said absolutely. And increasingly, I'm I, moving away from that. I think the further into life we get, the, the approach that you take, maybe not exactly the same way, but the idea of keeping what I would call a, a benign day job, yeah. you know, it's like, it's not the most miraculous thing in the world, but it's okay. It's enjoyable. You yeah. feel like you're doing good work. Yeah. You're making a nice amount of money. You're putting some money in the bank and, and it gives you the time to yeah. be with your family and take care yeah. of things. And then do that thing that nourishes you profoundly yeah. on the side or on the weekends or slowly, slowly by slowly. Yeah. To me, that is a very viable and yeah. validated path. Yeah, and, exactly. and I think I think in the US, we, we poo-poo that. We, you know, like... Yeah, because it's a cult of celebrating the entrepreneur and the, like now it's becoming yeah. a little bit like that, which is, which in its own way is nice. But I, I think you can create without having that infrastructure of creation. Like, like if you're, if you're trying to express yourself through your creation, you can do that without having to create a full business infrastructure around it. So I think in a way that's what I do is that like, uh, well, I'm working my job in which I do express myself through my job as well. I, I nurture an idea. Like for instance, with this book, I was nurturing a little bit of an idea over the two, three years I nurture that idea. Then in the year that I take off, I get really immersed in the idea. Then I create a little bit around that. I come out, I'm able to take it out in the like it's a it's a slower and a a much more gradual process of like like slowly and slowly immersing deeper and deeper into your uh stream or your passion in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And also if you if you create a scenario where 
you don't have to force that thing to pay your living expenses where you can just make that thing, you know, with your book, when you're writing, you're, you're not thinking, how do I yeah. write a book that's actually going to give me the money I need to take care of everything? You're, you know, it sounds like your lens was, you know, um, how do I get quiet enough to listen to the book that needs to move through me? Exactly. And without regard to whether it's ever going to be, you know, like a, get a huge advance or bestseller exactly. or whatever it is like exactly. that. Exactly. Absolutely. I think that's what happens exactly. Yeah. Um, so it gives you, it really gives you that freedom to not be tied to some sort of commercial end that may yes. change the way that the whole thing, or it may create a lot of constraints that aren't there when you're just doing it the way that you're doing yes. it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I do feel that when I write each time, I'm answering the deepest question to myself or for myself or the like, you know, what's plaguing my life or like, or what's really the question that's important to me. Yeah. Uh, and without any kind of almost thought about me, like, like I think in, there's a beautiful thought that a yogi's, a yogi's actions are neither white nor black. They're colorless in a way. So he's not trying to do good in the world or bad in the world. He's just acting. So I feel like sometimes with my writing, I feel I'm like 90% of the time in my writing, I feel I'm in that space where I'm not trying to write a book to make the world better or I have none of those intentions at all. I'm just trying to be the vessel for the, to your point to, for the, the vessel for the work to flow. Mm. And, and I think that's what happens. And I think that kind of purity comes only when I'm not thinking about monetization, my audience, my platform, the content that goes around the book and how to bundle it into what, like, you know, you, if you like, with, with that, with that pressure off, I think it, you truly become a vessel for your work in some way. Yeah. And, and then yeah. also, I mean, it's very aligned also with, you know, just classic yoga teaching, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, like the, be not attached to the fruits, the fruits of your labor. Work, yeah. yeah. And that's where like the most beautiful fruit almost always exactly. comes from. Yeah. It's so interesting that that's not how we operate in the Western world. Yeah. And, but that so many times, I'm curious whether you found this also, just even outside of your, so many times I've had conversations with people who produce stunning work in the world and, and that's been their process in some way. It's always very personal and very yeah, different. Yeah. Like you do the 414, yeah. other people do it on the side, right. but, um, this blend of somehow coming to some form of stilling practice. And then somehow dissociating the need for what you produce to have to serve a specific, you know, like master or outcome or goal ends up producing work that very likely would have never been produced on the level that it was produced. And then having that very, you know, like impact that is <laughs> probably never would have happened yeah, had yeah. it been, pre, you know, stri strived for. Correct. I agree with that. Yeah. Tell me a, a bit also, because, you know, during this year off, you know, you, you've mentioned some of the things that you do, but how much, I, I'm curious about more of what, what actually goes on during these, you know, quote, sabbatical years. Mm -hmm. It seems like, you know, a heavy, heavy emphasis on yoga practice, on meditation, on travel without uh, intention. Take me a little bit deeper into maybe those different elements. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I kind of like the writing structure a little bit. Like for me, a great novel has cracks a combination of entertainment and meaning in some form. Mm -hmm. Like if you have just meaning, then it's a very pedantic non-fictionish kind of book. Yeah. And when it's entertainment alone, then it's like the serial killer novel. Like it's, there's no, <laughs> like the reader is not going to get immersed in, uh, transformed as a result of the story. I think when the novel cracks or a, or a great piece of art cracks, this combination of entertainment and meaning in some form, I feel like in the sabbatical a little bit of that is the construct in some form in in which, like, for instance, in the last sabbatical, there were three legs to the journey. And with each leg, so with Europe to India by road, 
the entertainment or whatever you call it was the idea that we would like just have no plans at all in a sense and then the meaning of or what or like or the or the kind of the underlying kind of stream in this whole idea is that you are practicing making decisions out of intuition completely making decisions out of intuition and then also living in this willful poverty kind of a mindset where you're just trying of stripping your life of all comfort so that when i return i'm always operating with this idea that i can live on sleeping on the floor of an ashram and on cold water like i i like that feeling very much like so i i think part of me what like happens in these four years is that whether i like it or not i get very attached to certain identities like you know i'm a vegetarian i like organic juice I, like you know you get attached to yeah, these, yeah. even these basic identities and i like to be to have that time in which you're truly a monk if you will like where you just have to accept whatever comes your way so i i so so i think you so i go with a little bit of those constructs that i am going to be one living in willful poverty like without any uh, preferences and judgments of what i want mm-hmm. stripping life of comfort emotionally what i call reading myself of emotional materialism like wanting to read a lot grow a lot think like i'm just going to be completely silent for the year and then kind of like creating physical environments around that so like europe to india by road then living in an ashram in the himalayas learning doing yoga teachers training which is pretty ardus like it's a very ardus uh, like very tough endeavor right. um, you know from 4 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock in the night you keep doing uh, like you know it's uh, it's hardcore yoga and stuff up in the like living in an ashram and stuff and then so yeah so it's some of those principles like and, and i think those principles give a lot of anchor to the year and yet like um, you know transform you quite a bit yeah sounds like the first time you did this you were alone first time i did it was alone yeah. right first so two times i did it first time yeah so you've done it twice alone and then last time you did it with the wife yeah um so when you're with your wife how does that change this entire experience it's a great question uh you end up developing a lot of respect for each other i think which i i think we found ourselves deepen a lot in terms of our appreciation for each other because there's a lot of physical endurance that you have to go through if you're yeah. like uh, so i think that that happens uh, a lot it's it's a it's a relationship kind of endurance test in many ways yeah like yeah. Esp- especially when you're living in, in an indian ashram for four months men and women are separated your your contact with each other is very impersonal in some form you're meeting in a class where you're doing yoga together like it's a very you're probably taking one walk together but that's also is like you know roughly frowned upon in, in not, not in that much like it's a little bit frowned upon yeah that act of like a desire for an individual like you're almost kind of in that ashram for four months you're in this idea of like dissolving the individuals need for anything in some form like nana it's a focus on non attachment not at all complete yeah. and you and you're doing it in every form you're just focusing on like this idea that you are just dissolving that self, sense of self that wants anything even this act of wanting companionship in some form right is is like a slightly frowned upon so so did did you and your wife both experience this similarly i'm curious it hardens things a little because uh she was worried for a long time that that i would like because i was getting more more and more serious and reading a lot of the yoga texts and stuff she was very worried whether i'm going to like you know take on a Ever brahmacharya come back. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. in some way become the brahmacharya vow or right. whatever and like even if i would tell her on the surface that no i'm like like i'm i'm not but she she was like you know like i think those kind of things when you're four months living with each other uh, not living with each other in terms of like sharing a physical space you are almost strangers in some form to each other 
it's a tough in <laughs> yeah no it sounds really <laughs> tough because you were also condition. i mean fairly newly married then at that point yeah uh, we weren't even married then we came married okay and married. Yeah, yeah. got it so, so boyfriend and girlfriend boyfriend right? and girlfriend and yeah so like i think it it it, it uh, uh, a lot of insecurities about the relationship and stuff do come up and i and i think in some way it like was the whole experience at the end of it was very positive you know but yeah but i mean what an interesting way to to bring all those insecurities and questions to the surface when you're dating. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Sort of like, okay, let's bring this all to the table right, right now and like see how we feel about it. Yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting test too. Very interesting, yeah. And then also in an ashram, when you live for four months, you also, this is the hardest thing to explain, but you you are on totally on someone else's clock, uh, right? Like, so for five o'clock, the ashram bell will ring and you have to get up yeah. and do the satsang and like for two hours, sing on someone else's like schedule and then drink tea, then do the, like, it's a very organized schedule. So some part of your decision-making ability just Shut off, shuts off. So yeah. for, and, and after three, four months of doing that, it's almost like once you come out, you can't, I remember being in a hotel and like not being able to make simple decisions like, what to order for dinner like like your decision right. making has been subsumed for four months completely and it, it like it's a weird thing dynamic when that happens in a relationship because you just surrender like all idea of where the relationship is going and uh, it, it, like all parts of you are just surrendering completely because you're so on someone else's <laughs> clock i think or like on someone else's schedule yeah so then so, how do you i mean what's the prompt for you to step back in and start I don't know if taking control is the right word, but start being intentional. Um, start making the decisions yourself. And then I'm really curious too, yeah. like when those four months resolve and you guys are finally now together on your own clock in your yeah. own time, in your own space in that hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's like, hey, stranger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a way, you feel very awkward talking to each other. Yeah. And like everything seems touching each other. Like, you know, the physical, being an individual again is a very... Just a just a huge adjustment. So it almost takes a like. I, I think we've intended to stay in the hotel for only one or two days, and then kind of continue on with the journey. Like we were planning to stop in Portugal on the way back uh, to the US, but I think we just stayed in a hotel for seven days because we were almost reacquainting with each others at an individual capacity and having some individual thoughts for about each other like uh, individually we we just like very you know like that's the cult that's what happened truly when people say this is all a cult it like it's not that even if you're not in a cult kind of an environment with a guru or something but you do become a like a like you just become a sheep in a way like you don't think anymore on your own yeah so so yes yeah, it's, it's a it's a it's a strange experience because in the first month there's a lot of resistance living in an ashram and then it becomes a part of your life and then after four months you're almost uh, strangers to each other and then you know it, it takes so, so i think yeah so i think this was very interesting to go through this whole experience together so i think in the first four months we developed a lot of respect for each other's resilience as we went through very tough living conditions in europe to india like by living in like train stations and like yeah. walking for miles and all that stuff and then the next four months we almost were so it was very tough in many ways yeah um and then at the end of it when you come back together you've got to after literally have having given up your identity to a, yeah. to a large extent it sounds like you've got to first come back together and figure out okay after this who am i now because i'm a different person <laughs> yes, exactly. on, you've got to be a different person on <laughs> yeah. some level than yeah. when you entered that year yeah and then if you both step into how you've evolved as individuals, I mean, it's got to be really interesting to then revisit the question. Sitting here, you know, like in this hotel room, you know, like as as we step back into who we are and, and now, which is a different person than when we began this year, are we still 
compatible in the way that we began this? Are we now just, you know, are we different? Are we, you know, are we moving on together? Are we moving on in the same way? Are we moving on differently? That's had to have been really interesting. A little bit, yes, exactly. The, the only good part of all of this is that the the message in some form or the other with all the yoga Buddhism that uh, like, you know, is the, in a sense, the idea that the individual self has to be dissolved in some form or the other. So uh. you, I think you are, you end up in the four, three, four months, it's rigid in some form, but you also become uh, compassionate with both yourself and uh. the other. You just realize the, the kind of the constantly fluctuating nature of the mind. You know, you, you kind of like, you have a very visceral understanding of, emotions like greed and anger and jealousy you just under, like you know like for instance even now like it's been two years now since that whole ashram experience and i come back but even now when i'm talking to you and i'm leaning forward or or i'm walking on the road and i start to move faster those are physical signs that immediately make me realize that i'm not present like i'm mm. I'm rushing towards something so i think what happens is that a little bit of that there is a like a small delay in your action reaction cycle so, so I, which I think is wonderful because the moment like a negative emotion is arising, you just kind of become very observant of it. Yeah. So I think that's the a little bit of the power of what happened. That, that makes that makes so much sense. Actually, I had a longstanding uh, meditation practice, and I've noticed that that split second window is yeah. one of the biggest benefits because exactly. you just it gives you the ability to just kind of like before you just react yeah. or before you do something automatically, which yeah. we do so much of. You know, you just kind of you're like, oh, like what am oh, oh I'm actually walking faster or I'm about to say this thing or you know what's actually happening here the, but the idea of stripping down sort of the 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 self um, the ego to a certain extent bringing you to a place where you're you're less about you and more about how can I serve you know taps you into empathy and compassion to a certain extent so when you come back together does it make you so when you're in that room and you're back together and you're back in a relationship it's less about what can I like how do I get my needs satisfied exactly. in this relationship and it's yeah. more about just like how do I serve how do, yeah. how do we honor each other yes exactly I think that's that's what happens so like that's the that's the upside of what happens yeah, yeah. So, like of being four months in this very rigid environment and both intellectually through the text and then through the practices you're learning right. to kind of like lose the sense of myself and my wants you end up with a just just a little bit more compassion for each other and for yourself and like everything so on the other hand like you know the extreme form of this text is also about like you know the the yogis were brahmacharyas who were like right. you know so 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 it's just uh, so i i think my wife and to an extent i was also a little worried on how deep would we end up in this whole thing yeah like this four months become but, you know, like, I, again, as I said, there's some dharma in all this. And, and I think my innate tendency is not to become a hermit in this life. I think my innate tendency is business and which also I think is a very big difference in in the West. Now that we are talking about it is that I think viscerally growing up where I grew up, it's just sunk into us. This whole idea of karma, cause and effect, multiple lives that you're not trying to achieve everything in this life it sounds mystical and all that stuff but i can't help but that's my so i think that's why when you know you're like one life maximize it what are you doing you're a lawyer you should become a this like the, i think that is a little bit like we don't i i guess i we didn't i didn't have that pressure as much i guess hmm. because i feel it's a for whatever reason that i could be wrong in this like it's a it's a completely un uh, illogical and non-explainable belief but it is truly a part of my being that i believe in karma and cause and effect and it will continue and it's a gradual journey of more and more purification 
So the pressure to become everything that you want to become in this span is not very high. And when you buy into that, it sounds like it's incredibly freeing on a lot of levels. Very because, yeah. you know, on the one hand, it sounds like it's incredibly freeing um, because of exactly what yeah. you said. You're like, okay, I don't have to get this all done in this pass. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have many and more and more and more and more and slowly, you know, well, the process of, you know, like you said, purification yes. and getting to sort of like the essence. The other side, and this has been... Maybe a struggle. I don't know if I would call it a struggle, but a questioning of mine around the notion of karma is that I wonder if it also sometimes the idea of karma means that you will, you not only have the space moving forward to continue the process, but there is a cycle of lives that have happened before you that may have planted a seed which may constrain or bring suffering into your, your current pass through. And I wonder if that sometimes creates an experience of futility. A little bit of both because, it, like, I think this the science of karma is very, very logical in some way. It says, uh, again, if you get in deep into the text, uh, karma is of three types, which is uh, agami, prarabd, and sanchita, which basically means that you come to life with a certain karma, the reservoir right. of like karma, which is you are creating new. Right. And then that has its own cause and effect. So in a sense, it's a combination of free will and destiny. Some portion of your life is like is going in a certain direction and you're experiencing what you're experiencing because of destiny, but then your free will is having a tremendous effect on what the future is going to be. Yeah. So it's a combination of those, like, uh, like they, they've very scientifically called it like the, st- the reservoir, what you're making currently. And then, um, like the seed you're planting. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. seed you're planting. Like, so it's almost like there's a reservoir and then what in from that reservoir, one part of it is coming for this life. And then you are kind of constantly making new, which is going to go into the reservoir. And like an enlightened being is basically one who's like... Remove themselves from that. Yeah, entire reservoir is like being exhausted in this life at all. So that after that, he's making no new... Like his actions have no reactions at all because they're completely purified from any act. So it's kind of like it's a combination of free will and destiny. You do know that you're creating more as you go along, but you also learn to accept that what's happening is a consequence of the actions of the past or thoughts of the past yeah and you know when you really deconstruct it and if you hold it up to a modern lens is it really all that different from acknowledging genetics you know mm-hmm. it's the idea that you, you landed you know you emerged from the womb with a certain amount of you know with the genetic code predetermined you know and now with the field of epigenetics we know that a lot of what we do during life either turns on yeah. or turns off certain genes yeah. but it doesn't deny the fact that you have them and that they will exert a certain amount of control. But there is a certain amount of volition that, you know, like affects how those affect your life in this lifetime too. And what's actually, this is interesting too, because now it ties in with what you're also saying is that now we know that actually both genetics and the epigenetic, the turned on or turned off state is heritable. So you pass on not only the genes, but whether they're turned on and turned off to a certain extent to your offspring. Yeah, exactly. Because then like in, in Bhagavad Gita, they say that the, baby chooses the womb uh. so like that's why like it chooses the womb which has which is going to be the best like reservoir for it to live its karma in a way yeah um so, so, man, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's so interesting when you start to drill down yeah you a lot know, of this is very like in it's not it's that very different it's not very different. right it's not all I and mean, you you look at them and you're like yeah. oh, karma and genetic you yeah. know or like you know or like, even when like when they read like in the book a little bit about the yogi superpowers and stuff when on paper, when you're like reading people's minds and walking on water, and then you're like, like when I lived up in the Himalayas, when in the in this ashram, I, there were incidents that happened that 
when I talk right now here, it seems very foo-foo mystical, but it just made a lot of sense. So I, I remember like sitting one afternoon with a yogi who had who'd lived in a cave for 11 years and had come out and had started a school, but not with the intent of I'm going to help the whole world with this school, like the Western thing of like, I'm going to change yeah. the world with this new school system or whatever. And franchise it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> his, his idea was that he came out of the cave and then he just wanted to teach a little. So he kind of like got a bunch of kids in the village together and, and would just teach them in the afternoon in a very simple kind of a way, like not with the intent of becoming something different or whatever. So he, I remember sitting with him one afternoon and not speaking a word and he answering my questions. Like, it's just very hard to explain, but it's like almost like you and I are having a conversation right now. And and I don't say anything and you're like just uh, speaking whatever is in my mind or my thoughts almost. And I remember this whole three hours afternoon in which this whole conversation happened and Janardhan Yogi, his name was, and he, it, it, at that point, it didn't seem mystical. Now that I'm talking about it, it seems more mystical. But then when you realize that you're living in this very rarefied environment up in the mountains where you've learned to... Where like everything is like you can read the like the subtlest form of energy like uh, for him as he would say words are just a grosser form of thought and thought is just a grosser form of feeling so like for if a feeling arises it's just like more and more subtle like uh, the words are grosser forms of that a feeling is a subtle form of words and he can just like read subtler vibrations because he's very his life is simplified. He's living in a very purified area. So so it's very interesting that things that seem like otherworldly are very regular in terms of experiences because uh, so to going back to your point, like it all seems after when you look at it, it's not very unscientific. Yeah. I, if you have a feeling and you're expressing it in words, somebody can catch that feeling if there is no distance left between him and his ability to pick up. Yeah. The more open we become and the more the more science expands and becomes yeah. open to things which aren't, weren't traditionally, you know, easily validatable and testable with double-blind clinical studies, the more we start to realize that there is a whole lot that actually is going on that we just don't quite have the framework and, you know, the research to describe. But that doesn't mean it's not actually going exactly. on. Yeah. yeah. What What was the, you know, like, so, so the latest book, um, what was the genesis for that? The genesis for that were two kind of independent thoughts. One was I really wanted to write a very contemporary version of the Buddha story. The Buddha has been a, like a great, I guess, role model, if you can call it that. Yeah. Uh, for a for like I've been very inspired by his setting out quest and and what he kind of like learned as a result of that. And I wanted to write it very grounded in reality, not as a fable or as a. So I wanted to write like so that was kind of one thought which was going on in my mind. And the other, the bigger thought was that I wanted to write a very page turning thriller which was actually a spiritual story. So I, because I think what I've so, saw with spiritual literature was that it was either fables like The Alchemist in which right. like the author has a message or like Celestine Prophecies and then The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. They're very thick books about the author communicating a great yeah, message to help humanity. And I wanted to write a thriller, which like you crackle the pages with and like turn the pages with and become a part of the story without knowing that there is some spiritual message here. So I, I was like trying to experiment with this yoga meditation book that was a page turn. So I'm actually very excited when people say, when the reviews are saying that they couldn't, that they were up all night because mm. they couldn't put the pages. That's yeah. much more exciting to me than people saying that they're, that they like got a lot of knowledge about meditation or yoga or their life is trans. Because it's I, I like, I think many books have done that, but I wanted to write something which was 
a complete immersive story in which the reader melted into the story. Yeah. I didn't even know that there was any message being communicated or the author had some agenda talking about meditation and just wanted a story. So I, so I think that combination is what I <laughs> what yeah. inspired the book. And know. it kind of goes along <laughs> with your idea of like, you know, the role of actually acknowledging that entertainment plays a large exactly. part of this that, you know, you can write the most profound thing in the world, yeah. but if it, you know, if it's so cerebral that only a few people will actually force yeah. their way through it or if it just bores people to tears, it's not going to touch the people who need it most. Exactly. And that's the power of fiction is that in a good fiction, the reader dissolves completely. There's no sense mm -hmm. of self left because he's he or she's entered a, a dream world, a new world which has been created in which there is no sense of your own world left at all. And any time in that world, if the author is present, the fictive dream breaks completely. So that's very hard, right? So I wanted to write, like I had a lot of knowledge, at least in my, like, you know, research about yoga and meditation. And I, I didn't want to share any knowledge at all. Like it had to be a dream world in which the reader got their own knowledge slowly, gradually, if they had to. That must have yeah. been such an interesting challenge for you, though, because I yeah. shared with you earlier, I literally just got the book, yeah, so I've yeah. just started it, and I haven't, like, it's actually, yeah. it's awesome. It's, it, it does have that effect. Like, I actually really do want to, you know, like, so I'm going to spend the next 24 hours probably not sleeping to go through it. But, you know, it does seem, there is so much of you that informs it, and there's so much that you, through your personal experience, you can teach through it. It must have been a really interesting challenge for you to hold back and not go there while you were writing. Very, very. That was the, like, it was the, almost the hardest thing that there are some things that the character learns that are actually when i say wrong it's like wrong in the way in the way of like uh the knowledge but right in the way of his experience what yeah. he learns through that experience and then he kind of his learning evolves so yeah it was very like th that was hard and then also making sure that every spiritual learning had a physical component like like so that's why a lot of this book is a physical adventure through very hidden parts of india and yeah. So to make sure that like at no point, like that there's no more than uh, like there's no page at all in which there is any spiritual knowledge in a way, like, like right. in which nobody defines meditation. It's almost like it unfolds by, you exactly. know, as a byproduct. It falls um, as a byproduct of the physical adventure. So yeah, yeah that was the, it Did, was a hard book. It was my hardest book to write in that way. Yeah, yeah I, I would imagine. It's, it's interesting yeah. as you're sort of explaining that Um, I, I've been working on it, actually just finished my, my next one. And um. And similarly, I had to teach myself to write a very different book than I've ever written before, a completely different style, different structure, different format. And the whole time, it was the same thing with me. I was, I'm like, there's so much, I kept wanting to revert back to so much of what I had done before yeah. and what I knew. And I wanted to share this and that. I'm like, mm, this is not the purpose of yeah. this. This book serves a very specific purpose for a very specific community. Yeah. It has to be written in a way that's different. And I took it as, operating under that creative constraint i sort of took as like one of my big challenges like this is my this is my learning as an author is not just writing this book but also learning operating in, uh, under a new structure and new set of constraints was that something that was a, a part of what drove you very much absolutely yeah because i think in my past novels i've always the fictive dream has broken for the reader because mm -hmm. either i've put in a coincidence in the writing or like i've i've made it a little convenient for the story to deliver the message I wanted to deliver. Mm. And this time I wanted no sense of authorship at all. Like I wanted the reader to not detect the author at all. Now people are saying it's informed by my life, but it's almost like if they saw no acknowledgements, knew nothing about me, the story was like a organic created from this world, like from the universe. It just came about in a way without an author. Yeah. I love so, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so powerful. So, 
Irish Catholic wife from New Jersey. <laughs> I can't leave the conversation without asking how, how like you guys met. And, uh... well, we met in New York like through friends. And okay. Like, the usual. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but my family was, uh, I don't know, by then I think they were like, you know, like, you know, whatever. But... Right. How long so, have you lived in New York? When Or when did you come to the States originally? I so. came to the States with Procter & Gamble in 2009, I think, or okay. something like that. Yeah. So about a few years ago, but I came to Cincinnati first and Minneapolis. So I came to New York like three, four years ago. Yeah. And then I went on a sabbatical in the first year of being here, yeah. When it was time for your one, and you decided to <laughs> yes. go on the sabbatical, which your then, you know, like New Jersey Irish-American girlfriend, who decided to go along with you, what did her family think? <laughs> See, that's the beauty of it. I think uh, in their minds, they thought exactly what my family thought, but, <laughs> but their words would never... Like, <laughs> I remember, like, having a dinner with my family before we were leaving. Like, yeah. We went on a trip to India, like, this the December before we left. And, like, it was very open when my sister, my grandmother, and my dad, we were all on the table together. And they just started off without, I guess, like, my wife was, or my girlfriend at that time was next to me. And they just started off saying, oh, this is so irresponsible. You're hitting 35 now. Like, you're 30, like you're about to hit 35. And you're not married. You have no kids. They were just saying that in front of my wife. Like, you know, like, they just had no filter at all. Right. And I think my wife's parents were thinking, exactly the same thing right and just not expressing that <laughs> yeah so yeah uh, no but they were thinking exactly yeah, the same. Yeah. yeah which kind of brings us full circle also this <laughs> yeah. whole conversation yeah. so um so the name is, is good life project so if i offer that term out to you to live a good life what comes up for you truly what comes out to me is the idea that you should just become a a vessel for your work to express itself like just be a tree in a way i like the tree just grows and bears fruit because it's its nature and and i think there's a lot of beauty in that so if your innate tendency is very well expressed in a just don't take the messages of the world to become something that's not your innate tendency if the whole world is saying become an entrepreneur become this become that you don't need to if that's not your tendency because you can really reach a level of great purification by expressing yourself Thank you. No, thank you very much. That was a real pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real, unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iphone you just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there and if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it and then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs and for those of you our awesome community who are on other platforms any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated until next time this is jonathan fields signing off for good life project Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus 
Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.